Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And daughter, do death. Hello, Phoebe. Welcome back. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And, and more to the point, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm all right. Good, good. And uh, today marks three weeks to the day that uh, a special event happened. Yes, three weeks today uh, ago today that our new baby arrived. So yeah, we're, we're three weeks in and everyone's all right. We're all, uh, yeah, we're all good. We're all getting by, <laughs> having a nice time. He's slotted in perfectly, to be honest. So yeah, it's all it's all going really well. Great. And Dad's got in this evening to give you time to, to yeah. record this episode of Dad and Daughter yes. Do Death. As in, not you, Dad, as in his dad. His dad, <laughs> yeah. Saying. So it's, it's, it's granddad and mum do death. Yeah, <laughs> tonight, yeah. yeah. Granddad well, and mum do death. Granddad for um, the second time, mum for the second time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's got him in the sling, so hopefully he'll... Uh, He'll stay asleep long enough for us to uh, to record this. Yeah, but it's been it's been ages since we recorded, hasn't it? Because we stopped yes. a few weeks before um, I was due, and we kind of recorded a, a lot of episodes back to back, didn't we? So that we had we could we like did. kind of taste them out. But it's been over two months since we've properly sat down and and recorded something together. Yes. Yeah, so um, if you've missed us, well. Hopefully you're glad to see us yeah. back. <laughs> it's good to be doing this again. Yeah, definitely. I, I think we both missed it, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we have. And mm. it's I've I tried to kind of take myself away from sort of true crime generally, so I feel like I've I miss true crime quite a lot. But uh, yeah, getting but getting back into it now. Excellent. So I have a story for you tonight, Phoebe. Okay. First one after our, our break. Uh, it's one that I'd, I'd never heard of before. I suspect you haven't either, but hopefully it might give you and, and our listeners the idea to perhaps go and uh, go and look this one up and dig around a bit more. So this okay. is the story of a man called Buck Ruxton. It's a cool name. Buck Ruxton. Yeah, well, we'll Buck find Ruxton. out how he got that name <laughs> in a moment. <laughs> and, and the murders that he committed uh, in the first half of the 20th century and for this story i'm indebted to the lancashire news and the website of the glasgow police museum okay buck ruxton was actually born buktia chompa rashtomji ratanji hakim on the 21st of march 1899 and was by all accounts a hard-working dedicated and astute medical student who grew up in a wealthy Parsi family in Bombay in India, now called Mumbai. Mm. With the support from his parents, he studied at the University of Bombay, qualifying as a doctor in 1922 before becoming a surgeon and specialising in several surgical disciplines. He seemed to be a normal man who was dedicated to his work, and he had an altruistic streak. In 1925, he married another Parsi woman as part of an arranged marriage agreement, but the relationship didn't last very long. The next year, he moved to Edinburgh to work as a doctor, presumably leaving his estranged wife behind in uh, 
in India. He was keen to fit in with British society, so he changed his name by deed poll to Buck Ruxton. Nice. It's quite a, <laughs> quite a deviation from his original name. It but, is, uh, isn't it? <laughs> and while he was in Scotland, Buck met a 26-year-old woman called Isabel Kerr, who he began seeing, walking out yeah. with. Courting. Courting, yes. So he was still legally married to his Parsi wife in India, and she was still legally married to a Dutchman, but her marriage had also broken down, and so she turned her attentions to the dashing surgeon. Her willingness to leave her Dutch husband would perhaps be a foreshadowing of Buck's fears later on in their relationship. In 1928, Buck moved back across the border to England and settled in London with his new partner, Isabel. The two never formally married because they were still legally married to other people, but it was established that Isabel was his common-law wife and she willingly took his newly formed British name of Ruxton as her name. So now she was Isabel Ruxton. He worked for a doctor in London, and in 1929, Isabel gave birth to their first daughter, Elizabeth. Buck left London in 1930, together with Isabel. Uh, There's no real indication of what what prompted the move, but they moved north to Lancaster. Okay. Where they moved into number two, Dalton Square, in the centre of the city, next door to an old cinema and near the famous Lancaster Grammar School. This tall Victorian building that they now lived in became not only the couple's home, but the medical practice that Buck established there. Mm -hmm. And Buck Ruxton turned out to be very popular. He was very eager to fit in with British society. I mean, we've seen that with the fact that he changed his name to something very Western. Yeah. (laughs) And he wanted to sort of become accustomed to British practices. As a result, he was seen as a popular and charming man. And he often waived medical fees for those who couldn't pay. And amongst the community, he was well-regarded, well-liked and popular and thought to be a really good doctor. So this is before the days of the NHS, where people had to pay to go to the doctor Mm -hmm. and yeah, fees weren't necessarily cheap. So for him to sort of waive those fees and to see people without charging them it was seen as being extremely generous. Yeah. Presumably he charged the people that could afford it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he did. In 1931, Isabel gave birth to their second daughter, Diane. But behind closed doors, things were fraught between Buck and Isabel. Mm -mm. While Buck was well-liked and considered well-to-do, he was also quiet and reserved in social situations. He was the complete opposite to Isabel, who was keen to socialise and was considered to be very attractive. At the Mayor's annual ball at the Lancaster Town Hall, she danced all night with a number of different men while Buck sat away, keeping himself to himself. Mm -mm. 
Now, Buck was beginning to harbour suspicions about his common-law wife, suspecting her of cheating on him and growing uneasy with paranoia. So now he's thinking perhaps the ease with which she had left her previous husband, the Dutchman, yeah. um, it, it was a bit of a red flag, possibly okay. an amber flag <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> going up, uh, that maybe because she left him, maybe, uh, you know, the first man, maybe... She's, she's, she's gonna leave him too mind you mm. he's also left his first yeah, wife that's true. so yeah he he was uh getting very suspicious and as a result tension between the two grew rapidly Mm-mm. to the point where in 1932 isabel made an attempt to commit suicide mm-hmm. trying to use gas to asphyxiate herself it turns out that she was actually pregnant at the time. The attempt failed, but in the process, she miscarried. Oh, no. But she recovered, and the next year, she gave birth to the couple's third child, a son called William. And that same year, the family hired a live-in housekeeper come nanny, who was called Mary Rogerson. So in those days, it was common practice for middle class and upper class families to have living help. Especially I could really when do with some uh, living help. I, yeah. <laughs> I bet you could, yeah. I had this conversation with Richard last night. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have a nanny? <laughs> yeah, we could do with some living help. <laughs> yeah. Mary Rogerson was brought in to help with the housework and to look after the children. Sounds like a dream. <laughs> So by this point, tensions between Buck and Isabel were at new levels. Their arguments Mm. would explode into fits of rage or tearful hysteria from Buck, who was growing even more paranoid and angry that Isabel was being unfaithful. Mm -mm. These arguments prompted Isabel to leave him on several occasions, taking herself and the three children away to her old home in Edinburgh. But Buck would inevitably call and convince her to return home because the threat of his common-law wife leaving him was was unbearable. He didn't want to lose her. Fair enough. So I suppose he'd ring up and say, I'm sorry, come back. Yeah. Come back with the three kids. What Mary Rogerson was doing while she was away, don't actually know. Have an arrest. In 1933, the same year that William was born, Isabel complained to police that her husband had begun beating her, an accusation that Buck denied, whilst telling Lancashire police that she had been unfaithful to him. Mm -mm. Isabel invariably returned to her husband within 24 hours of making a complaint to the police. So it sounds like they were just... He said, she said, yeah. you know, having a fall out. All a bit toxic. And, yeah. It's, um, Sounds like um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. <laughs> maybe, yes. <laughs> anyway, and so it went on for a couple of years. With uh, the children were getting older, their arguments were going on. She was still leaving him. He was still calling her back. And so she would. And all that However, in May of 1935... PC Norman Wilson was called to the Ruxton household following a quarrel between the two. And when he arrived, the officer was told something rather startling and sinister by Buck, a statement which would later come true. 
Mm-mm. Buck said, Sergeant, I feel like murdering two persons. My wife is going out to meet a man. <sighs> Buck also told the police officer he wanted to apply for a court summons against the man who had enticed his wife into an affair. <gasps> Because in early September of 1933, Isabel had travelled to Edinburgh to visit one of her sisters. Now, she travelled north with a family from Lancaster, the Edmondsons, who were, I think, actually neighbours of the Ruxtons. Okay. And Buck remained in Lancaster to look after the medical practice. But he later confessed to investigators that he had been convinced that Isabel was having an affair with Robert Edmondson, who had used this trip as an excuse to spend time together. Mm -mm. Buck's paranoia, fear and anger over his wife's supposed lack of fidelity, which was never proven, had driven him to a point from which he just couldn't return. Okay. So it was was just, it was all in his head, this... uh, Right. Well... I don't know, no smoke without fire? Yeah. Who knows? Well, he was just so paranoid and so kind of anxious about it that he'd kind of built up to be this massive thing in his head. Yeah, and he convinced himself that uh, all these bad things were happening where maybe, actually, well, they were never proven, so maybe Mm. they never were. On the evening of September the 14th, Isabel left Buck to see her sister in Blackpool and to visit the Blackpool Illuminations. And she got back home at about 11.30 that night. Okay. It was then, or perhaps in the early hours of September the 15th, that Buck strangled Isabel with his bare hands before stabbing and beating her lifeless body. That's pretty brutal. And Mary Rogerson, the nanny, was also in the house at the time. Mm Mm-mm. And whether because she had witnessed Isabel's murder or because Buck needed her out of the way, he also killed her. Oh no, poor Mary. And the next day, Buck's children were taken away, out of the house, and taken to stay with a dentist in Morecambe. Okay. I presume it was some sort of friend or colleague that... Uh... <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Not just a <laughs> random dentist. About, yes. So... After the children had gone and the house was now empty, Buck set about dismembering the bodies Mm-mm. in the bathtub. Ooh. The bathtub that everyone in the family used. Nice. Now, experts believed it took him about eight hours to complete this grisly task. That's quite a long time. Yeah, mutilating and expertly cutting the two corpses up into around about 70 different pieces in order to hide their identities. It's alleged that Buck then took the pieces, wrapped up in separate packages, 100 miles away into Scotland and dumped them in the River Lynn. Wow. On the morning of September the 29th, so, you know, a good couple of weeks later, mm-hmm. a woman called Susan Johnson was leaning over the parapet of a stone bridge near Moffat in Dumfrieshire. She noticed a package in the water that was lodged against a rock. And protruding from the package was a rotting human arm. Oh. 
The Dumfries Sheik Constabulary were called to the scene and began searching the surrounding stream and ravines. They found more bundles, including two severed human heads. And each of the bundles contained mutilated human remains, bones, limbs, and sections of flesh, all in an advanced stage of decomposition. I suppose it'd been like two weeks, hadn't it? Yeah, been, and they've been in water. In water, and all cut up as well. So, I suppose, yeah. yeah. They had, rather interestingly, been wrapped in clothes, a bedsheet, pillowcases, and several newspapers. Okay. And the grisly discoveries were called at the time the jigsaw killings <laughs> okay. by by the by the media yeah. by the by the tabloids, I expect, because uh, there was a bit of a puzzle putting mm. all these bits back together. Big grisly and, jigsaw and the, puzzle. I mean, they had two heads, but I suppose they didn't know exactly how many people were in in all this no. model. At least two. <laughs> well, it was two, as we know. Um, yeah. So the the remains were taken to two eminent forensic scientists, eminent at the time, I suppose, in 1935, at Moffat Mortuary on the 1st of October. Professor John Glaister was the man who began drawing swift conclusions about the 70 separate human pieces that had been found. He was able to deduce several key points relating to the discovery. Namely, that the remains were of two female victims of different ages and heights, and that, more importantly, they had been dismembered by a skilled person with anatomical knowledge. Mm-hmm. All the mutilation and scarring on the victims had been done with a surgical blade, and the killer had done an extensive job. So their eyes, ears, skin, lips, soft tissue, and several teeth had been stripped from their heads making physical and dental identification almost impossible. Oh. He was pretty thorough. <laughs> but then he kind of dumped them in a weird place. Like yeah. You'd have thought that he'd have like spread them out a bit or buried them in yeah. moorland or something. Why did they just dump them in a river? Well, yeah. Now, well, we'll come on to something about that in a minute, which is, okay. is interesting. Well, kind of interesting. <laughs> So any other areas of the body that could have held surgical scars or vaccination marks or anything that was sort of um, could be used as a way of identifying them were removed. And the oh. victim's fingertips were also removed, wow. although some still remain on one of the hands that were found. All of the flesh from one of the victim's legs and the thighs of another had also been removed. <laughs> Pretty extensive uh, yeah. mutilation, isn't it? No, it took eight hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Must be an awful lot of blood and stuff in the... Oh, um... God, yeah. Yeah. All that the police knew was that one body was that of a woman aged between about 35 and 45, whilst the other was aged between about 18 and 25. Okay. It wasn't much to go on, but the anatomy department at Edinburgh University was able to deduce by looking at the age of the maggots and the pupae in the decomposing flesh that the bodies must have been disposed of sometime after September the 17th. And they still they still yeah. use that method now, don't they? Looking at the flies and the maggots and yeah. things that, that come to bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. The Dumfriesia constabulary was sure very early on that the bodies and the perpetrator were not from the local area. The first clue to that 
was where the bodies had been found, going back to the river. Right. In the tributary river, Lynn. Now, if the killer had dumped the packages in the nearby Annan River, only a couple of miles away, the rains and the current in the river and everything would have pushed the bundles into the Solway Firth, flowing into the Irish Sea, and possibly they would never have been found. Mm-hmm. Okay. But because yeah. he put them into that other bit of river, they didn't really go uh, anywhere. Okay. So that's why they thought this person hasn't got much local knowledge because he's right. known to put them in the um, in the other river. The yeah, because he's gone to all this other trouble. Yeah. Yeah. The River Lynn was close to a major road running from England into Scotland, and police began to turn their attentions to the idea that someone had travelled up to the Southlands to dump the bodies. Then there was a particular newspaper called The Sunday Graphic. Wrapping the victims in national newspapers was quite a smart move because that wouldn't in itself have identified where it came from. But not when the particular issue of the Sunday graphic was a souvenir edition printed and circulated solely in the Morecambe and Lancaster area. No way. And dated September the 15th. So the police had a lead that pointed them to the Lancaster area. Mm -hmm. The police now concentrated their efforts on missing persons cases reported between September the 15th and September the 19th. Because they knew roughly when the bodies were dumped or when they were deceased from the maggots and all that business. And, well, they'd also got the date of the newspaper, I suppose. But, so they couldn't have been dumped before then because the newspaper hadn't been printed. Yeah. Now, on September the 24th, 1935, Buck had visited Lancashire Police, telling them that his wife had once again left him. Okay. He'd also gone to visit the house of his housekeeper come nanny, Mary Rogerson, telling her parents that she had become pregnant and had left with his wife to have an abortion. Okay. Abortions were illegal in Britain at the time, which justified the, the cautiousness of the whole tale. Okay. Now, on October the 1st, Mary's parents visited Buck to ask him again about where their daughter was. And this time they were given a different story and their mm-hmm. suspicions were aroused. And they, the Rogersons, filed a missing persons report for their daughter. But after that, things rapidly fell into place for the police. The jigsaw yeah. was coming together. So police visited Mary's parents, asking if they could identify any of the clothing that had been found with the packages in, in the river in Moffat. Her father instantly recognised the blouse because it had a particular repair beneath one of the armpits. Mm, He claimed his daughter had last worn that item on September the 14th. Now, I'm not entirely sure how he knew that if she was living in the Ruxton house, but uh, maybe it wasn't very far away from where they lived and maybe they'd seen, I I don't know, but... uh, That was the information that uh, her father gave. Now, there was a pair of children's rompers, which are also identified by a family friend of the Ruxtons as something that she had bought for one of their children the previous year. Okay. Remember that the bodies were 
wrapped up in all sorts of bits yeah. of clothing material. and material and stuff. So presumably these rompers were one of them. Some of, yeah. This was a very new science at the time, but the forensic detectives were also able to use those few fingerprints that were recovered from one of those hands to mm-hmm. match them with known fingerprints belonging to Mary Rogerson. Oh, wow, okay. So combined with Buck's admittance on 24 that his wife had left him, the police now had a great deal of evidence to suspect that he was involved. Yeah. Perhaps Mary Rogerson didn't do a great job because they <laughs> they also had a cleaner that came in a couple of times a week to the house. Right. Maybe her main job was more sort of just general Look housekeeper and looking after the children. Because police then spoke to another cleaner who used to come to the house who gave several pieces of damning evidence against him. On September the 15th, which is probably the day that, um, that the women were killed, Buck had specifically told her not to come to work at the house until the next day. And when she did arrive at number two, Dalton Square, the house was in a right state with carpets removed, a pile of burned fabric in the garden, later believed to be some of the victims' clothes that hadn't been uh, included in the in the bundles mm-hmm. and the bathtub was extensively stained with a yellowish discoloration much like the iodine used to clean surgical implements mm, okay and furthermore dr ruxton had specifically requested that she clean the bathtub that day Ew. so with all this evidence mounting against him but was taken into custody and charged with murdering his maid the next month, one of the skulls found in the River Lynn was identified using groundbreaking anthropological methods. Well, okay. This was done with an image of the skull being superimposed onto a photo of Isabel Ruxton. Now, for 1935, I think that's pretty... That's um, crazy. It is, yeah. And associated with this case are quite a lot of pictures. So I can, um, I can put pictures up of, uh, of these photographs and things that they superimposed uh, that, yeah that'd be good to see because that's crazy yeah. they could do that they could just like yeah put the two together and think yep yeah, that's that person yeah yeah replica models of the victim's feet were made of gelatin yeah i guess they had the feet didn't they to do it from yeah and they were then placed into what were known to be their shoes why don't they just put their like feet a, into the shoes well i don't know maybe they were in a bit of a state oh yeah that's true yeah okay they've just been if these odd feet just lying around that that sort of piece back together again and they're all rotting and everything yeah fair enough yeah Yeah. makes sense anyway this that also confirmed that the dismembered body parts were that of isabel ruxton and mary rogerston so having already been charged with the murder of mary rogerson he was also then charged with his wife's murder Mm-mm. Though the trial didn't last very long, with Buck conducting himself very poorly on the stand. Oh, he no. fell into fits of hysterical crying. He was unable to give clear answers to many of the questions that he was asked. And a jury took just one hour to find him guilty. And Buck was sentenced to death by hanging. Another swift trial and swift yeah. decision. Buck denied the charges throughout, but later sent a confession to a Sunday newspaper who published it the day after he died. 
It read, I killed Mrs. Ruxton in a fit of temper because I thought she had been with a man. I was mad at the time. Mary Jane Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. So, yeah. He was executed on the morning of May the 12th, 1936 by Albert Pierpoint. The bathtub, which had been removed for evidence from number two, Dalton Square, and in which Buck had dismembered the two women, was made into a horse trough for the Lancashire Mounted Police. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because all that had gone into their Mm. black museum. This case is significant as it is an early example of forensic scientific tests being applied to help in the identification of bodies. Coming just a very few years after fingerprints were very first used to identify criminals. So, uh, yeah, in that respect, it was was quite groundbreaking and and innovative, really. Yeah. Like real forensics being used. Real real forensics, yeah. And I mean, I'm looking at now, actually, the pictures where they put the skulls over the top of the the faces. They had to get the angles right because they if yeah. they had a photograph of them in life, then they'd have to get the skull at the right angle. So yeah, it was a, a kind of a landmark in forensic scientists. Yeah. science in helping to capture criminals and yeah, which mm. has obviously gone on to more and better things. Obviously we know Definitely. what DNA <laughs> they would have been able to identify them much quicker if they'd had DNA back then. So number two, Dalton Square, still stands to this day, and it is now the headquarters of Lancaster's planning department. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so if you work there, just bear in mind that two women were strangled and hacked up in the bathtub. Yeah, wow. That's that's the story of Buck Ruxton and the two murders that he carried out. Quite That's interesting really interesting. One. Yeah. Really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, a, a British murder. Never heard of it before. No. <laughs> and like I said, um, yeah, if you're listening to this and you want to find out more, I'm sure you'll find some stories about about Buck Ruxton. Mm. Yeah. And like I said, there are plenty of photographs which I can share. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'll put them onto our social pages. I'll put them onto Instagram. At Dad and Daughter Do Death. And on Facebook. Just look for Dad and Daughter Do Death. If you would like to contact us about this story or any others that we've done, or if you have any suggestions for ones you think we might like to cover, please email us. At Dad and Daughter Do Death at gmail.com. And it'd always be really good to hear from you. Yes, thank you very much for listening and for joining us back again after our little hiatus. <laughs> um, <laughs> please do like, comment, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, very much so. Well, I'll let you get back to uh, to baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please excuse me uh, crying in the background that you might have picked up on. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, fine. it's lovely. I'm sure he is. He just he wants a, he needs a feed. So uh. yeah, probably. <laughs> so join us next time. We're once again, Dad and daughter do death.